sentence. And you will note the outline overhead there. We are in that section, finishing out that first section, warning to Judah of God's coming judgment. The day of the Lord theme is what we find here in the book of Zephaniah. The other book in the Old Testament that has this as its major theme is the book of Joel. And so we have two uh, Old Testament books with this theme, but it's interwoven in lots of the prophets as we uh, study in the Old Testament. As I say, the day of the Lord theme is a broad theme in the scriptures. It depicts a time of God's intervention in which his lordship power in the form of judgment is demonstrated in devastating and undeniable fashion. It is called the day of the Lord for a reason. It's the day when God shows up and overtly puts his lordship on display for all to see. The nature of it is seen at the end of Zephaniah chapter 1 as it is portrayed in ominous terms. Note uh, verse 15 here. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. It's painted in very dark terms here. Very severe judgment, a day of reckoning. It centers in the hands of an angry God, if you will. Well, there are several facets to this uh, day of the Lord theme. Uh, There was a day of the Lord intervention in relationship to the Babylonian captivity, And there is a more extensive development of the theme in relation to God's judgment of the world in relationship to Christ's second coming in what we commonly call the tribulation period. The first, uh, in a sense, what we happen back here in relationship to the Babylonian captivity, that first emphasis of the day of the Lord emphasis, God's intervention in, in judgment where his lordship is put on display, That Babylonian captivity day of the Lord, in a sense, is the forerunner and really portrays the last day's day of the Lord event. And so note a couple of slides here. I like to talk about uh, the near, partial, distant, complete aspects of the day of the Lord. Uh, The day of the Lord with a small t related to the Babylonian captivity, more of a, a near partial emphasis. And then the day of the Lord, the tribulation period, which Christ said is going to be the worst time in the history of the world. And that is yet to be fulfilled distant. So we see both of these aspects. Uh, The prophetic uh, telescope, you got the prophet. And so there's intertwined here, near fulfillment and far fulfillment in relationship to the day of the Lord. We see both of those aspects interwoven in relationship to this theme called the day of the Lord. So interwoven throughout Zephaniah and virtually all of the prophets are these two strands of near partial and yet distant complete fulfillment. As I say, the historical day of the Lord judgment that took place at the time of the Babylonian captivity foreshadows the last day's day of the Lord judgment that will be fulfilled in relationship to the coming tribulation period. My theology would put it like this. <clears throat> we are living uh, in the church age right now. That's where we are. I believe the church is going to be raptured out. Uh, the rapture is a new revelation 
It was a mystery, not revealed until we get to the New Testament, which is consistent with all of church truth. We didn't know about the church until we get to the New Testament. Uh, It's not revealed in the Old Testament, very clearly brought out in Ephesians 2 and 3. So we live in the church age. Uh, We're expecting one of these days, as Christ promised, uh, he will come again and receive us to himself. Uh, We don't know when that's going to be. Could be tonight. That'd be fine with me. Uh, We'll see when it happens. Um, But then that's going to be followed by what we call this uh, seven-year tribulation period. Where do we get the idea of seven years? Where do we get the idea of a seven-year? Why do we say seven instead of eight or six? Why do we talk about a seven-year tribulation period? You know where we get that concept of seven years? Yeah, Daniel. The, the 70th week of Daniel. Right. Uh, you know, the, the one week is, week is a seven-day seven period. Well, in Daniel, it represents seven years. One week of years. 69 have been fulfilled in relationship to Israel. But there's one seven-year period that hasn't yet been fulfilled, and that's in relationship to the Antichrist. It begins with Israel signing a covenant with Antichrist, Daniel 9, 27. That's where we get this concept of seven years. The church will be raptured out. Uh, God will complete his program with the church, and then he will come back and complete his program with Israel, culminating with Israel coming to repentance and the second coming of Jesus Christ. This period here is the day of the Lord judgment, the tribulation period. So keep that in mind as we work our way through our study tonight. Well, what is the point of Zephaniah drawing such a dark and dreadful picture of the day of the Lord as seen at the end of chapter 1? And it is very dark. Well, he brings us to the purpose as we come to chapter 2. And there we find the goal is to bring people to repentance, not despair. Matthew Henry said many years ago, Zephaniah intended not to frighten them out of their wits, but to frighten them out of their sins. (laughs) That's true. Uh, That is true. There's a strong warning to that end, to bring the people to repentance. So let's pick it up. Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 1. Gather yourselves together. Yes, gather together, O undesirable nation. As I say in Zephaniah, there is a two-pronged emphasis One that relates essentially to Judah, and then also in a a broader emphasis that relates to the whole world, of which Judah is really the catalyst. That 70th week of Daniel has has Israel as kind of the, the central player, but it involves the entire world. So in view here in this verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, is the summons to God's people, Israel, Judah. And note the context here. At the end of chapter 1 that we looked at last week, as seen in verse 18, the application of God's judgment has a universal application of the day of the Lord's wrath. It says there that all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth, as so translated in the ESV. Now it's in that context that we now enter into Zephaniah chapter 2. That's the last thing that was said in relationship to chapter 1. Now we come to chapter 2. Now you understand chapter and verse divisions were not in the original text. Uh, They were added later to help us find our way around in our Bibles. And I'm very thankful that they were added. I mean, it'd be kind of hard to find your way around otherwise. 
But uh, we, we note that uh, they were not uh, in the original writings. And it's good to note that sometimes chapter and verse references do get in the way of the flow of the text a little bit. We'll get to that when we get to Matthew chapter 17 coming up in a few weeks. But it's with universal judgment, just having been stated in 118, uh, which would relate to the climactic end times day of the Lord judgment. It's with that in view that we now come to chapter 2. And it's with this universal coming judgment in view that God's people Israel are summoned with the words, gather yourselves together. Yes, gather together. It is stated twice here for emphasis. Now, many commentators think the idea here is that God's people Israel are being summoned to gather for the purpose of collective repentance, similar to what we find in Joel chapter 2. For example, uh, surrounding context in Joel and in 2.16, for example, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, the nursing babes, let the bridegroom go out of his chamber and the bride out of her dressing room. There's, there's a tremendous call for repentance in the face of the coming day of the Lord. Well, that's the same context that we have here in Zephaniah. So you can see why, as you compare Scripture with Scripture, yeah, the calling of the people to gather is for what purpose? Well, to come together in repentance. And that is certainly a possibility uh, that the call to gather is for the purpose of repentance, getting right with God. And this may certainly be involved, and I think it is, uh, especially as we get to verses 2 and 3 here tonight. But initially, the emphasis is simply on gathering. And then, out of that flows the thought, gather to repentance. So I see this here in verse 1 as really an emphasis on a physical summoning. A summoning of his people to gather back to the land, back to the land of promise prior to the end times day of the Lord, within a further call of repentance, summoning them to repentance. Moody Bible Commentary kind of summarizes where I'm coming from here. Although this could be a call to collective repentance, it could also be a call to return to the land of Israel prior to the eschatological day of the Lord. Thus, it refers to the Lord literally regathering Judah back to the land prior to the day of the Lord, the seven-year tribulation period. And I think that fits well with the flow of the context here. Uh, also, the word gather uh, has an interesting uh, meaning or nuance to it. Uh, it is often used in reference to uh, a literal or physical gathering. Uh, the worst word gather is, is elsewhere tied to the idea of, of stubble or sticks uh, that are used for burning. Thus, God's people are pictured as dry, facing the burning wrath of God's coming judgment, as it will serve as a time of great purging. And no God's people, Israel, here are referred to as an undesirable nation. This, more literally, uh, is shameless, shameless nation. Uh, Bible Knowledge Commentary has this note here. The words shameful nation are literally, O nation, not shamed. Shamed is nipsap or kasap, to be pale or white with shame. A related word, kisap, means silver 
the pale-colored metal mentioned in chapter 1. So the idea is that God's people at this point, although living in great sin, as we have noted in chapter 1, have no shame. They don't blush or turn white with embarrassment. They are hardened and insensitive in their sin. Hence, they are an undesirable or, more literally, shameless nation. They don't have any shame over their sin. Now, when I read J. Vernon McGee's commentary, it almost made me laugh, not in a humorous sense, but in an ironic sense. He said there, I do believe that there was just as much sin when I was uh, growing up as there is today. And there's nothing new under the sun, of course. But he says, but the sin was carried on behind the curtain or in the backyard or someplace else where it could not be seen. It was not flaunted before the world. It was not boasted of. In other words, it was not shameless sin as it is at the present time. He said, I heard a very beautiful young woman on a talk program on television boast of the fact that she is living with a man to whom she is not married. The others on the program congratulated her for her courage and broad-mindedness. Nobody called it shameless sin. Well, uh, we've come a long ways from, from that. Are you kidding? We not only uh, would go along with it, society, that is, uh, there's no shame whatsoever in terms of society as far as immorality today. Not, in fact, we have a whole month that they call Pride Month, right? I mean, we kind of glory in the sin. We legalize it. I mean, we have immoral marriage. It's called marriage. It's not biblical marriage. It's, it's unbelievable. There's no shame, not as far as our culture. Look where we are today. Even among professing Christians, there's a lot of battles over what's moral and what's immoral, when the Bible is very clear. There's so little blushing or embarrassment over flagrant sin. Our whole society, including many professing Christians, seem to have forgotten how to blush. We're very bold in our sinfulness. We are shamelessly sinful. And that really defines last day's apostasy. Uh, you know, apostasy, sinfulness. I mean, depravity is really ugly. I was talking to my wife about the war in Ukraine. We were seeing some of the images today, and it's so, it's so horrific. And we say it just kind of reminds you of the depravity, the wickedness of humanity. And we like to think that Putin is so much more evil than we are, but, but for the grace of God, there go I. Uh, I'm telling you. And you say, well, Putin is so much more wicked than our leaders. Uh, you really... Uh, I, I, you might want to rethink that just a little bit. But anyway, I, I, when we're killing babies the way we're killing babies and legalized murder, we say, well, look at what he's doing. Look at what we're doing. Uh, you know, there's a lot to be uh, said in terms of where we are as well. In Romans chapter 3, you know, Paul is working through the pagans are under condemnation, the moralist is under condemnation, the religious... The religious people are under condemnation. He, those three categories he systematically works through in Romans 1, 2, and 3. And then he comes to a 14-point indictment in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. And you know where... And all of those quotes, by the way, those 14 indictments, they're all quotes from the Old Testament. Uh, there is none that do, doeth good. No, not one. They're all turned aside, et cetera, et cetera. But you know where he ends up in Romans 3, 18? There is no fear of God before their eyes. No fear of God. That's what we have here. Shameless. Bold in their sin. No shame. 
I think in view here in our study in Zephaniah is the return of Israel back to the land in a shameless condition. They gather in unbelief, which is where they are today. Most Jews living in Israel today call themselves secular. Many don't even believe in God at all. A majority are in this category. Yes, they keep some of the traditions. We might call them cultural Jews. Yes, they're blood Jews, but in terms of religion, culture. Cultural Jews. They keep Shabbat, but it's a cultural thing. It's not a conviction thing, really. They're not really religious or or God-fearing. Most of them are very shameless about it. Well, with the the great day of the Lord judgment coming, this is their condition. Verse 2. Before the decree is issued, or the day passes like chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you. I want you to note the word before. It's found three times in this verse. The gathering in view in verse 1, emphasized twice, relates to this whole issue of before. This gathering takes place before the day of the Lord's anger comes. Takes place before the decree is issued. In other words, before the judgment that is to fall, that will quickly cause all to wither and blow away like chaff. It takes place before the day of the Lord's fierce anger comes upon them. And it takes place before the day of the Lord comes upon them. This gathering takes place before the coming day of the Lord judgment. And I believe this is where we are right now in history. Judgment is coming. I mean, if the Bible is true, the day of the Lord's judgment is coming. But we live in that time before the day of the Lord. It hasn't come yet. We're still in the age of grace. Israel is gathering gathering back to the land. And they are in a shameless state. That's where they are. It's a time when they are being regathered before the coming day of the Lord. Arnold Fruchtenbaum, a converted Jew, written a lot of commentary. But he says this in verse 2. The word before is used three times in relationship to the preceding passage regarding the tribulation. So he's convinced we're talking about, you know, the day of the Lord here ultimately has in view the tribulation. One of these befores includes before the day of the Lord itself. This passage clearly states that this regathering in unbelief will occur before the tribulation actually begins. Well, that would be a prophecy, if that's true, that Israel is going to be back in the land prior to the coming day of the Lord. And they're there. Tim LaHaye said, These descriptions are all references to Israel's regathering into the land of Israel before the seven-year tribulation period is to begin. It is especially significant that Israel was reestablished as a political entity in A.D. 1948. The current nation of Israel is now back in the land in unbelief, yet positioned to fulfill what the prophets have predicted will happen during the tribulation. So yes, they're back there before this coming day of the Lord. And what are they to do in that state? Well, verse 3 continues. Seek the Lord. Gather. They're gathered. Before the day of the Lord. Do what? Verse 3. Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth, who have upheld His justice. 
Seek righteousness. Seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Well, in verse 2, there is a threefold emphasis on before. And here in verse 3, there is a threefold emphasis on seek. The people back in the land, in an undesirable, shameless condition, are called upon to seek the Lord before the day of the Lord's judgment hits. And really, the emphasis here on seek is directed to that remnant that truly know the Lord, as it would appear. Note how they are described. The meek of the earth, who have upheld his justice. These are not wicked people who have no regard for the things of God. It's the meek. Some uh, translations have it at the humble. It is the humble who are called to seek Meekness is indicative of a submissive spirit. This directive to seek is directed to those who have upheld God's justice. Well, why is this? We might expect the emphasis to be directed to the shameless. They should be seeking, right? Other scriptures do bring out that emphasis. For example, in Isaiah 55, 6 and 7, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So why is seek here targeted or directed to the humble and those who uphold what is right? Well, this would seem to be the point. God always has a remnant. And he has a remnant of Jews today who are back in the land. And he works through and in conjunction with that remnant. That's how God works. And the closer they are to God, the more effective their witness will be. Yes, these are already humble, but they need to seek the Lord all the more. Yes, they already have been standing for what is right, God's justice, but they need to seek God all the more. They are called upon to seek righteousness and humility even more intensely in view of the coming day of the Lord judgment. Now, some have seen this seeking really as a call to prayer directed to the faithful remnant who will be living in the land in the end times. In view is the call to be earnestly seeking after God. And certainly, that is what we are to be doing as God's people, period. Matthew 6, 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, All these things shall be added to you. And then at the end of verse 3, we have this intriguing statement. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. That's an interesting statement. What does that mean? If this is indeed as as Fruchtenbaum, as LaHaye, and many other uh, commentators think that this is really talking about that last great day of the Lord judgment related to the tribulation period. What does this mean? When it says here that it may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Well, the description of the humble who truly seek the Lord and stand for his righteousness throughout the scriptures is indicative of those who are true worshipers of Yahweh. It is to these true worshipers that we have this statement. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Well, what might this mean? Well, if they are true believers gathered back into the land before, 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 as we saw in verse 2, 
before the day of the Lord's judgment, which is, say, before the tribulation period, then my theology says they are going to escape this coming time of wrath via the rapture of the church. Now, we know the church, as I've already emphasized, we know the church and all that goes with it, including the rapture, was a mystery not revealed in the Old Testament. But my question is this. Could this be a veiled, emphasis on veiled, could this be a veiled reference to the rapture hidden back here in the Old Testament? Possibly. Possibly. I'm not dogmatic here, but I say possibly. It was Augustine who first said, the new is in the old concealed, and the old is in the new revealed. Now, there are limits, I think, to how far you can go with this, but in general, I agree. For example, uh, the Feast of Pentecost, which we associate with the, the Day of Pentecost, is the only major feast not associated with some prior occasion in Israel's history which is being commemorated. Well, why is that? Well, Pentecost uniquely relates to church truth as we discover as we come to the New Testament. So I think the truth of it was there in veiled form, but it was not known until we get to the New Testament. The two loaves baked with leaven in relation to the day of Pentecost as seen in Leviticus 23, 17, were very unique. Why two loaves? Why the leaven? Many believe these two loaves foreshadowed church truth, which is made up of Jew and Gentile. The leaven represents the reality of sin, which still remains in the church until glorification. How about marriage? How about marriage? You know what marriage is all about, right? Yes, you know Ephesians chapter 5. It's a picture of Christ's relationship with the church. Didn't come on the scene until the New Testament, right? Oh, no, 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 no. That's early, early, early. Genesis chapter 2. All along, marriage is ordained by God, as ultimately intended by God, was to be a picture of Christ's relationship to his church. That picture is nothing new. Marriage, the fundamental reality of marriage has not changed. But the deeper meaning of it was not made known until it was revealed in the New Testament. Ken Symes says this. He may be on to something here. Throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, God establishes many principles by which he functions. Could this be the establishment of his principle of operation, which is the foundation of the rapture of the church? There is no mention of the church in the Hebrew Scriptures. True. So this is not directly speaking of the rapture of the church, but it does clearly establish the principle for it. This verse could hint that there will be Jewish people who will be hid in that day of the Lord's anger because they will have already been removed in the New Testament catching away. I'm not dogmatic here. But if indeed we are talking about before the coming day of the Lord, related to the tribulation period, and in that context, being hidden from this coming day of the Lord's anger, then in my theology, the rapture is a great possibility of what this hidden may entail. Again, 
Not dogmatic, but how else do you explain it? You got believers. Are believers going to go into the tribulation? Are they going to be hidden? I don't think so. That's not my theology. So uh, if you don't take it the way that I'm suggesting as a possibility, uh, you have the meat going into the tribulation, and that has all sorts of theological problems, at least in my view. By way of application, what should those of us who are believers be doing in the shadow of the coming day of the Lord judgment? I think we live in the shadow of the coming day of the Lord. Well, Peter is pretty clear how we should be living. Uh, Peter says this, But the day of the Lord, so he's clearly talking about the day of the Lord, will come as a thief in the night, when they're not expecting it, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, the elements will melt with fervent heat, with both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, Peter says, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? It's kind of the exhortation we have here in Zephaniah to the godly. And then he says in verse 14, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. So Peter instructs us in view of the coming day of the Lord, which will come as a thief in the night. That's how it's introduced. On the backside of the, the millennium, it, uh, is, everything comes crashing down. Uh, with the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will burn with fervent heat. But uh, we are in view of this coming day of the Lord, which will begin with the, the night phase, uh, the judgment phase and the tribulation. Uh, it will come as a thief in the night. And in light of that, we are to maintain an eternal perspective and live in light of eternity. And this is always relevant. God expects us as his people to constantly live as those on the cusp of eternity. And we are on the cusp of eternity. Our lives are what? Like a vapor, just like that. We are quickly gone out into eternity. Well, in view of God's coming judgment, we should be living holy and godly lives, endeavoring to live lives that are without spot and blameless. Or by way of application, in the language of Zephaniah, we should be seeking after righteousness and humility. And as we do so, we have the further revelation of a blessed hope that indeed... God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain deliverance through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I know this will not come as a surprise to you tonight. It is what we call the, the super sign of the last days. Israel is back in the land before the day of the Lord. That's where they are. Israel is back in the land in unbelief. As an undesirable nation, shameless in their rebellion. The call for the godly right now is to earnestly seek the Lord in our witness for Him as we await the great escape. And the call to the ungodly is to come to repentance so that they also might escape this coming day of the Lord judgment. We know what is coming. God has not held that back from us. We know what's coming. Namely, the day of the Lord's judgment. We just don't know when. It comes as a thief in the night. We are not in darkness. We see it coming, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We just don't know the timing. 
we know Israel is gathered back into the land in shamelessness. We see it. And we know before the judgment falls, the call is to seek the Lord. Well, live ready. Live ready. Maranatha, our Lord comes. Perhaps even tonight. Indeed, live ready. When that event happens, the great escape, as God snatches his people out of the world, not appointed to wrath, but to attain deliverance in that form, uh, it's going to happen when nobody's expecting it. As far as the world comes as a thief in the night, that's why we are exhorted to be watching and ready. I submit to you, live ready. This is our calling. All right, let's stand and have our closing song, and then I'll close in prayer.